Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Seth Williams. In a two-part interview, Seth describes his fall from grace from being elected the first African-American district attorney of Philadelphia, America's fifth largest city, to being tried for corruption, to becoming a federal inmate serving five months of his 60-month sentence in solitary confinement to a new life after prison of faith and service. A member of our white collar support group that meets on Monday evenings, Seth goes into stunning detail about his poor choices, prosecution, prison experience, and his lessons learned. So coming up, Seth Williams on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Uh, we have a very special show today. Uh, our guest today is Seth Williams. You might know his name because he was the former district attorney of the city of Philadelphia. And there was a lot of publicity around his rise and his fall. And now uh, we're going to learn about his redemption, which is uh, wonderful. And among other things, he's going to talk to us about the treatment he received um, in the criminal justice system as a former prosecutor and the five months he spent in solitary confinement directly after um, his uh, sentencing, uh, which is a horrible, horrible thing, which he'll talk all about. Um, but I know Seth mostly as a ministry of our ministry, and he's a regular member of our White Collar Support Group that meets on Monday nights, and he's been so helpful to everybody, and um, he's such a uh, profound voice. So without belaboring all that right now, because I'm sure we'll get into it all, welcome, Seth. It's good to see you, and welcome to White Collar Week. Well, thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure for me to be here. And just listening to you, I was just thinking about how much I wish I had known about your ministry uh, prior to my incarceration, or while I was under investigation, while I, after I'd been indicted, because all the things that kept me up at night or the things that made me feel as though I was going to lose my breakfast because I was so anxious and worried and uh, just the unknown. If I had known there were people that had gone through similar situations and experiences and could talk to me about how they got through it, um, their, their lessons learned, it would have been really helpful to me. So I'm just glad to be here and hopefully people can learn about my rise and fall and uh, all in between and what happened to me and how I'm trying to rebuild now and maybe to help someone or be a beacon of light to others. So Seth, one of the things I want to say uh, from the outset are, is that typically um, I don't invite people on the podcast if they've not been out of prison for a significant amount of time because I'm, I'm always afraid that they're still in trauma and um, they don't understand what the repercussions could be of, of telling their story or their narrative too early. Um, one of the reasons um, I asked you is that um, you've been willing to disclose your, your situation. You've, been, uh, you've had other interviews. And I think that you've made a very rapid um, leap into self-awareness and self-discovery um well maybe it's not so rapid because you're probably doing it while you were in prison but um i've become a great admirer of yours and your willingness to work hard at your transformation so i just want to let you know that from the outset well i appreciate that it means a lot to me but i recognize that i am still a, a, in a, a healing process mm -hmm. and i'm still in a, a renewal process and a learning process and that I have to remain humble um, and just continue to listen. Um, but it means a lot to me you saying that. Thank you. So I think where we want to start is 
there's not that many people who become the district attorney of a major city. I mean, this is the fifth largest city in the country. So why don't you take us from a big slice of your life, like from, let's say from childhood up to becoming an assistant district attorney. And then from there, we can kind of get into the politics of becoming a district attorney. But take us through your your backstory arc. Certainly. So uh, I was given up for adoption at birth, and I lived in an orphanage, when they still called them orphanages, and uh, lived in several foster homes. Um, and God uh, had a plan for me, and I was blessed to be adopted by Rufus and Melba Williams, and they were just a wonderful couple uh, in West Philadelphia. My uh, biological, my adoptive father was 45 at the time. My mom was 35. Um, he was a school teacher. He worked at the recreation center in our neighborhood every night from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., coaching, playing ping pong with kids, right? Showing movies on Monday nights. And he ran the day camp in our neighborhood every summer for Fairmount Park. My mother was the executive secretary at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Wow. And uh, she'll tell you that there was a new admiral every three years. <laughs> but she was in charge since the 50s. And uh, my father didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He didn't curse. He was the son of an African Methodist Episcopal minister. Mm-hmm. Um, after serving in a segregated World War II, he went south and started teaching in a college. And he, he met a Creole girl that was 10 years younger that did all three of those things often and well. Mm-hmm. And so they were just like the yin and the yang. And, um, but they were just a humble middle-class couple. And they, I was the only extravagant. They put me in the best private school they could, a Quaker school. Um, and I just had a wonderful, wonderful childhood. But my father, almost every night at dinner, one way or the other, he would say, unless you're willing to be a part of the solution, you forfeit your right to complain. So I always found myself as a child, I was the, the head altar boy. I was, you know, quarterback on the football team, um, class president, this, that, and the other. And it was never out of some sort of Napoleonic desire to conquer. It was just almost Catholic guilt and my father telling me that you have to be a part of the solution. You just can't talk about it. Mm. You have to be about it. He really tried to live the Gospels. Mm. and so. I also, when I was in 1970, there was a, a, a murder at the bottom of the hill across the street from where I live, a Philadelphia sergeant in the park guard who was my father's friend, um, was murdered by some militant uh, folks who were very upset about racism, which was appropriate to be mad about, but you just go killing some innocent police officers. Yeah. Um, so, but I, the, the police reaction was um, overboard in how they began to abuse African-American men in the neighborhood that had nothing to do with the shooting. Mm-hmm. And so I witnessed that and the turmoil that followed. And so that always played a part in my development and that I wanted to be a part of making a system more fair, more just for victims and also those that were accused. Um, I went to Penn State. I was the president of the Black Caucus. My father had been a student there. Uh, he got there in the 40s. He was one of just 12 black men at Penn State. Wow. And they were all varsity athletes. Mm-hmm. But because of the color of their skin, they couldn't live on campus. So, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. He went and fought World War II, came back, founded the NAACP chapter, founded the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity chapter. And fought for civil rights and uh, equal access to public accommodations. Um, I got there as a student after uh, graduating from high school. I went to West Point for 197 days. I tell folks I got a, a, um, a medical discharge. Uh-huh. They found out I was allergic to calculus and chemistry. <laughs> um, and uh, then I went to Penn State and I quickly got involved with the. Um, the anti-apartheid movement um, to get our school to divest from South Africa. Yeah. Um, And I let him march. He walked 102 miles 
from Penn State to Harrisburg to get our school to divest. Wow. I had a bullhorn everywhere I went. You know, I yelled, apartheid kills and Penn State pays the bills. Um, and as a result of that 102-mile march, just 35 other students went with me. Mm -hmm. um, then Governor Bob Casey wrote a letter to the Board of Trustees demanding that they divest. And they did. And I learned a lesson from that, that a small group of people um, can make a difference. Yeah, the, uh, the, Mar the Margaret Mead saying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot from that and it really instilled this passion in me to, to fight for social justice. Yeah. It could be fun, right? I was on the newspapers in school and all that, almost as if I was a football player at mm -hmm. Penn State. Um, I'd be, I was elected president of the Black Caucus, president of the entire undergraduate student government at Penn State. Wow. Um, and so I, I found myself in those types of struggles and enjoying it. And, and, and you're, you're a leader and you know that, but you're also a black leader and there's a certain amount of weight and baggage that comes with that. Right. And there's a challenge. I received death threats while I was at Penn State. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, there is baggage that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just trying to represent everyone, trying to do the right thing as I saw it when I was yeah. only 20. You don't really know what the right thing is, but you're just trying to follow your heart. Right. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And again, I thought I was uh, an extension of my father. Mm -hmm. I, my adopted father, Rufus Williams, that was the life that he had lived. And so I saw myself trying to do the same things and fighting for justice. Um, when I graduated from Penn State, I, uh, I, I wanted to continue a career just as a, a rabble rouser, right? Just as a protester of some form. Yeah. But you look in the, the classified ads, there's no job for that. No. You say, well, I'll just go to law school, right? Mm -hmm. And I wanted to help people but because of my uh, allergy to math and chemistry. I couldn't go to medical school. Yeah. So um, and I really thought when I was younger about maybe going to the seminary and becoming a Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. um, but I wanted to be like my dad. Yeah. My dad had the kids and I wanted that, that, that uh, ability as well. So I couldn't be a Catholic priest. So I, w I went to law school. Mm -hmm. And I went to Georgetown Law School and really enjoyed being in Washington, D.C., just all of the additional ways to complement and supplement my education. Um, just a fascinating place to be. And I was a public interest law scholar. My third year, I was in a criminal justice clinic. And I didn't, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. If I wanted to be a housing rights advocate to some sort of go help uh, fight for the poor in some way. When I graduated at community legal services, wasn't sure how I would apply myself. Um, the professor in the criminal justice clinic, he said, Seth, as a young black man, you should go home and be a public defender because you understand the criminal mind. So I, I thought about that. I'm like, it was almost like Archie Bunker giving Lionel Jefferson advice. And yeah. he met, it, just, it just didn't sound right to me. Yeah, absolutely. What my experience had been in the criminal justice clinic was that I loved trying to fight for my clients, but what I saw was a bigger uh, systemic issue. Yeah. The person with the greatest power in the criminal justice system, um, person with the most discretion, is actually the police officer on the corner or on the beat who stops the person, yeah. how they handle that situation. Mm -hmm. After that person, it's actually just the youngest assistant district attorney that reviews the files, whether or not this should be prosecuted or not. We're just talking about normal street crimes, right? Yeah, sure. And I said, I want to be that person because if the charges should be dropped, I'll drop them. And if the victim has rights that need to be fought for, then I can do that too. Mm -hmm. It's still ensure that I thought maybe naively that I could mold the system by being on the inside. So I began a career as an assistant district attorney in Philadelphia in uh, 1992. Mm -hmm. I worked in the municipal court unit, prosecuting felony preliminary hearings and misdemeanor trials for a year, doing over a thousand preliminary hearings, a couple hundred misdemeanor trials. My second year, I was in juvenile court unit where I prosecuted uh, children that were alleged to have violated the law. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I spent the majority of that time actually prosecuting adults that committed crimes against children. Oh. And the majority of those crimes I came to learn were sexual abuse cases. Yeah. And 90% of the defendants in those cases are people known to the family. Dad, a stepfather, a grandfather, mm -hmm. an uncle, a teacher, a coach, a minister, camp director, people that the family had entrusted uh, the life of this child with, a yeah. person who took advantage of that. Um, and it was just such an emotional toll on me. Oh, my and God. Yes. And some of these kids are, are trafficked between family members. And what I found, my personal experience, Jeff, was that I would go to court and the family, they all knew Uncle Skip had done this. Yeah. But they were mad at the child for talking about it and publicly and bringing accountability to Uncle Skip. Yeah. And they were mad at me. And this was just something I was totally unaware of and unprepared for mm -hmm. and did not handle it in the best way for my own mental health. Yeah. And then I began to just numb myself with, with alcohol mm. to handle it. Um, and that began in a progression. So as I began to move through the DA's office, I, I was in the felony waiver unit for two years, prosecuting felony mm -hmm. cases. Defendants had waived the right to a jury. I was in the major trials unit prosecuting the most serious felony cases for two years. I was asked to supervise the municipal court unit and then to create a unit called the repeat offenders unit to use empirical data to try to find ways to hold accountable the people with the most arrest and the most violent foes. Um, and so I was doing that. I was teaching. I got married along the way. I joined the army as a way to close the loop on what I saw was a failure in my life. When I was at West Point, I got a direct commission as a JAG officer mm -hmm. in the United States Army Reserves in, uh, in, two, in 1998, actually. Did, did you ever serve any active duty as JAG? So I was active duty six months at West Point. Mm -hmm. And then once I was in the reserves and in the National Guard, you have active duty when you go away for training. Yeah. Every two weeks, I mean, every for two weeks a year, we mm -hmm. became much more than that after 9 11. Yeah. Um, I had five overseas tours for training, mm -hmm. four in Germany, one in Italy, um, but no combat. And I didn't serve in any combat areas. I tell people, have you ever heard of airborne? Well, I was chairborne, I was a lawyer. Um, my role, though, <laughs> was to serve those that serve America, to fight for those that fight for America. I'm I took that role seriously. And it was my part to play to help uh, help our country. I had a friend in law school who was uh, ROTC um, undergrad. Oh, you got to show the mug here. As, as long as as long as you're showing the mug, you can show the mug. So uh, <laughs> your mug shot. So he was ROTC, and I think he was ROTC in law school. I, as I think they were paying some or all the freight. And then he was, um, um, for 20 years or more, um, um, he was in the reserves. And then he got called up for active duty sure. in Iraq. And um, they gave him, I think it was six months notice. But he was, uh, he was trying um, court martials and... Sure. and uh, and uh and murder cases out in fort bragg right. and his offices in fort bragg i guess he lived in fort bragg <clears throat> and um he had to close his practice down and and he he got shipped off to iraq as as jag he was uh, uh petraeus's or one of their uh their personal uh, attaches you know jag over there but um i never knew that could happen i never knew that they could call you up whenever they want, if you, especially if you were JAG, but uh, he got called. Yeah, people only consider lawyers what they might see in uh, some movies. Yeah. Um, you know, JAG officers are very instrumental in all branches of the military. Yeah. In serving capacities that you would normally think of, such as defending and prosecuting. Yeah. But also preparing uh, legal assistance, doing all these things to help the soldiers and their family members 
you know, from wills, powers of attorneys to mm-hmm. issues with consumer products. Mm-hmm. You also have um, attorneys, JAG officers who are operational lawyers. So they are actually embedded with the combat units. Yeah. Um, to advise the commanders on what they should like, it's almost like being the the angel on the general's shoulder. Sure, of course. You know, if there's an issue, well, how should we deal with these prisoners of war? Mm-hmm. Well, we need the the people saying, no, legally, you can't do those bad things. Right. Or we have laws of war. As crazy as it is, you know, if a plane is flying, you can shoot the plane. But if you shoot the plane and the paratroop, the, the pilot ejects, you can't shoot at him or her while she's falling to the ground. Interesting. Um, you can't target hospitals or ambulances. Yeah. So JAG officers play a significant role. And the majority of people um, post 9-11, you know, in our warfare in, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan mm-hmm. weren't shot as combatants like head to head, but as a result of um, explosive devices. Yes. IEDs going off along road, along caravans, caravans carrying all types of soldiers, not just infantrymen. Sure. JAG officers, doctors, cooks, everyone. Or supply, anything. Right. So Oh, oh, so I, I need to correct myself, by the way. I said court marshals. I meant courts martial. So I just want to correct myself. For, But um, it was, again, another opportunity for me as I saw it. My father had served in World War II. Yeah. My grandfather had served in World War I. Um, I really took seriously. Um, some people make a joke of, you know, we, if you're willing, if you believe in um, our Bill of Rights, um, and all those rights that we enjoy as Americans, then I was led to believe and taught by my father and mother that you had to be willing to stand up and defend those rights. Mm. Someone had to pay a cost for those. Yeah. Um, and I saw it as my role, um, what little part I could, right, as a fat, bald guy, just to be a lawyer that was going to help those that were fighting for America. And I learned a lot of leadership. I learned a lot. Um, and again, in hindsight, I gained much more from the experience, probably, um, the service I provided those that wanted my help. I was always finding myself learning more from people that I was trying to teach. Well, you're not fat anymore, Seth. You got the prison buff going. So, <laughs> so, um, so you get this crazy idea that you want to run for public office now. So make the jump from a from a service position, a paid position, to uh, um, uh, an appointed position, sure. to a, an elected position, which is nuts for most people. Um, but also, you've been super involved in um, the criminal justice system in Philadelphia. So there are people who think you've been too tough. There are people you think that you've not been tough enough. There are people who think that you've been a uh, a progressive advocate for change, and there's people who think that they have locked them up. So now you're 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 entering into the political system. What prompts this uh, this, and then how does it go? Sure, and that's a wonderful question, Jeff. And it, it goes to an underlying tension that I always felt. Um, as you look at me, you know I might not be the stereotypical. African-American, I'm kind of a little bit kind of butterscotch. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I had a, my biological mother was white and my biological father was African-American. Um, I went to a prestigious private Quaker school where 95% of my classmates were white. I lived in a neighborhood that was about 99% African-American. Um, and there was always a tension yeah. of me trying to fit in wherever I was. I was either too black or not black enough, too white, not white enough. Um, And so that was a tension. And also me always wanting to fit in and to feel wanted. Mm -hmm. So I always struggled with abandonment and rejection issues, which Mm -hmm. led to some of my self-destructive behavior that found me 
uh, alone in a single solitary confinement prison. Um, but to your question, Jeff, I, ever since I was little, right, no matter where I worked, what I was doing, after just a few days on the job, I always thought, no matter where I worked, that I could do, there's got to be a better way, that I can do this better. I worked at Sears when I was 16, selling pipes, lighters, tobacco, and chewing gum. I worked at Domino's Pizza. I drove cab when I was in college. I always thought there's got to be a better way. So as a young assistant district attorneys, uh, sitting around with my colleagues, we would just sit around and say, look, this, the system is broken. Just from a, an efficiency standpoint, from an outcome standpoint, about two-thirds of all the felony arrests in Philadelphia were being dismissed. Mm-hmm. Not on the merits. Not on, is this the right person that we're charging? Is this sufficient evidence? Just because we couldn't get the witnesses, the police, the defendant, all in the right room enough times. Yeah. So I just knew the system was broken. Mm -hmm. That Philadelphia led the nation at that time in the rate of homicides caused by handguns. Yet my predecessor was known as America's deadliest DA because of her use of the death penalty. Mm. And no matter what the question was, the answer was more jail time, more jail time, longer sentences. Mm That's why there was no rhyme or reason between what we were saying publicly for our criminal justice system and what the outcomes were. Mm-hmm. It was like nobody cared. In a 30-second soundbite debate, whoever sounded the fiercest would be the DA. That's how it seemed to me. But to help supplement my, my, my family's income, to pay the bills so my adopted daughter could go to Catholic school, mm-hmm. I started teaching at Penn State, teaching administration of justice. And I started learning about criminology theories. So this started opening my mind. Well, there are better ways. We should be using empirical data, you know, data-driven research to improve the criminal justice system. What are the best practices? What are they doing in Australia? What's working in you name the, the location, Portland, sure. mm-hmm. Seattle. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from New York City? Mm-hmm. So I ran for district attorney um, in 2005 against an incumbent who had spent about like $1.5 million to run against me. Mm-hmm. I only raised $150,000, but I got 46% of the vote in the Democratic primary in the city. I wasn't the son of a former mayor or state senator, wasn't sure. wealthy. Um, but I wanted, I ran, my t shirts all said, Seth Williams, smart on crime, not just tough. Hmm. Because my predecessor was known as the tough cookie. Right. And um, we need to be smart. We need to, what does being smart on crime mean? It means that we're going to address the root causes of crime. Right. We have to find ways to prevent crime. Mm-hmm. Jeff, your family would prefer that you weren't shot, not that you were shot and the DA's office handled the case well. Right. Right. You prefer that your car wasn't stolen. So there are things that we can do through environmental design, um, through other methods that that can prevent crime. We need to prevent crime. We need to make sure that victims are made whole. We need to ensure that the system is equitable for those that are accused. We need to improve, reduce recidivism and improve the outcomes for those that go into prison. So I ran on that platform in 2005 and lost. Um, I later began to tease our now vice president, Kamala Harris, because Mm -hmm. she was the district attorney of San Francisco and wrote a book called Smart on Crime. Mm -hmm. And I told her, if I had copyrighted that, you'd owe me royalties. But I wasn't as smart as she was, and she did that. And and still. <laughs> and still is. Right. And um, so, you know, and God bless her. I'm very happy for her. Of course. Fortunate arc of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ran and I lost, uh, but I got a lot of attention for the ideas. And I wanted to run based on ideas, not mm-hmm. the normal Philadelphia politics of mm-hmm. Throwing mud, right? Talking about 
you know, her personal life. Yeah. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, a few months after that, I was appointed by the mayor of Philadelphia to serve as the inspector general to investigate all allegations of corruption, fraud, oh. abuse. Uh, in the city's government. And that was a wonderful job with wonderful people um, trying to root out systemic waste. Um, And and that was a a great job. And I worked with wonderful people and I learned a lot from that. Um, And it's very ironic, uh, you know, how I was later prosecuted for some of the things that I had investigated and knew about um, and you would think that I would have known better from my experience as the inspector general. Yeah. Um, but I was always in the paper, uh, frequently in the news as the inspector general for what we were doing. But again, you're right. Made enemies. I made enemies politically when I ran against the machine mm-hmm. in 2005. Because people want you to wait your turn. Nobody knows who you are. You need to wait your turn. Right. Um, you can't run against her. Yeah, we don't like her. We don't want her to be the DA anymore. But she will hurt us if we support you. Yeah. Um, in ways that I could take us another five hours on, on this TV, on this show, right? Yeah. So I, I made enemies as the inspector general. I made enemies running. Um, I, a new mayor came in. And then I went into private practice at a, a, another large law firm in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ran again in 2009 in mm-hmm. a primary with four other candidates. So there were five of us. Yeah. I won the primary and then I won the general election with 75% of the vote. Wow. And on January the 4th of 2010, I was uh, inaugurated uh, as the first African-American district attorney in the history of not only Philadelphia, but the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Wow. Exciting. Exciting. And I, again, the platform was about being smart on crime, mm-hmm. about community-based prosecution, mm-hmm. about having the, it's, it's one thing, any politician worth her weight in gold will go to community meetings because right. they want to get reelected. But what I saw is more important wasn't whether or not Seth Williams knew about the plight of crime in West Philadelphia. Do the 600 people that work in the district attorney's office, are they committed to the community? Do they understand the community? Because crime occurs geographically. There are patterns of crime based on time, temperature, season. Um, And so my idea was to reorganize the office geographically. Mm -hmm. In Philadelphia, Jeff, for your viewers, DAs were assigned to courtrooms where cases came from all over the city. Sure. DAs, assistant DAs got their cases the night before they went to court. Mm-hmm. Did the best they could that day with all their cases. About a third, defendants don't show up. About a third just get continued for whatever reason. Right. Another third either are pled, negotiated, or go on. You never mm-hmm. know which third before you show up. Yeah. And after that day is over, you write down on the files what happened, and they stay on a shelf. Until the next, the night before the next time. Yeah, that's still true in most jurisdictions. It's a totally broken method. Yeah. It doesn't need to be that way. But yeah. it's just, this is how it's always been done. Yeah. So my theory was one of community-based vertical prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and the DAs would be assigned as teams to handle cases based on the percentage of cases from each of the... Philadelphia has five division police divisions. Mm-hmm. Each division has three or four police districts. Police officers are assigned geographically. They don't just show up one day and work in one neighborhood and another neighborhood. Yes, of course. Even, even sanitation workers are assigned geographically. Yes. You know, so where I grew up as a kid, if your car got stolen, everybody knew it was probably the Natividad boys on the 6100 block of Catherine. Mm-hmm. So when we were kids, they stole your Nerf football while you're playing in the street. When we got older, they stole bicycles. Then they started stealing cars and had a a chop shop. So crime occurs geographically. Embedding the DAs geographically makes them better and more compassionate and more empathetic to all the parties involved with the criminal justice system. And we systemically began to reduce the cases that were being thrown out. I created GunStat in collaboration with 
Police Commissioner Ramsey, where we would use empirical data to find out where the shootings are, who's being shot. We then created focused deterrence with um, David Kennedy from the John Jay School in New York. And so we began, again, using empirical data to prevent crime and to better prosecute it. Um, and what's very important to me is the gun violence. It was the majority of the people being shot were young black and brown men. Yes. And if we were to draw a Venn diagram, if you remember Venn diagrams. Sure, of course. Mm -hmm. Middle school science. You have one circle. These are the most likely people to be shot. Mm -hmm. And another circle of those most likely to do the shooting. Mm -hmm. Well, in Philadelphia, the intersection and the union of those two was about 70%. Wow. So we could identify those most likely to be shot by the groups and people they're associated with mm -hmm. and geographic locations and times. Mm -hmm. So with that knowledge, let's do something to prevent those crimes. And that's what we began to do. And we saw a significant reduction in gun violence and homicides in Philadelphia in 2012, 2013, 2014, and 2015. Well, it, it, it wasn't typical, at least back then, for a district attorney to be taking the lead in compassion, empathy for the constituency, applying social determinants of health and, right. and underlying criminological factors other than as a lock them up kind of mode for, I mean, for you right. to actually be taking that leadership um, that was probably at that point, typically in the, uh, some of the nonprofits, but certainly in the academics and for you to take that on was radical. Right. And that caused a lot of enemies. Um, people thinking it's not the role of the DA or DAs don't talk that way, but there was a new generation of more progressive prosecutors. Right led by Kamala Harris, led by um, the then DA in Brooklyn, um, other people around the country, uh, Dave Satterberg in, in Kings County, Washington, so it's Seattle. Yeah. People are looking for solutions. And that we, we can't in incarcerate our way out of crime. Mm -hmm. For every $100 spent on early childhood education, we're spending $600 for people who go to prison. Yes. So that if we were to be smart, we would do all the things that we know. And so I believe that we needed to have more diversionary programs, programs for people that, yes, they've gone to follow the law. But if we give them a felony conviction, that's like an economic death sentence, and they'll never get a job other than chopping onions in the back of a, a restaurant, mm -hmm. right? At right. Less than Right. So, and so, so, I mean, let, let's go from that thought because you're kind of like right on point here where Seth Williams becomes Seth Williams, right? And, right. and, and, and where you don't know that the writing is on the wall yet, but you're becoming, is it fair to say grandiose? Is it fair to say right. self-absorbed? Right. So that's a very good point. So here I am before that. I'm trying to run. I'm trying to get these ideas out. Yeah. And then once you, I got there, there's no one around me to tell me how to handle all of this. Yeah. My dad had passed away in 2001. He's my best friend. Um, he was my best man when I got married. So I didn't have him to be my rock. Um, and I didn't know who to listen to. I didn't know who to believe, who to trust. Because everybody's coming at you in different ways in politics. People that you think were your campaign employees, one day, they're working for the opponent the next week. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know. Um, and so, yes, I, you, the grandiosity begins because I have to talk about these ideas. And if you can't get free media and you can't pay for media began to have to use Twitter and social media. And so then you start spending all of your time. Look at me look at me look at the great things I did. Look how I, I brushed my teeth very well today. <laughs> right. And that begins to begin a whole new thing. And you're right. I began to 
to speak like a superhero when I would talk to kids at the the corner store. Yeah. That, Jeff, plus I had two cell phones on me every day mm-hmm. at all times. One would go off with every shooting and would have the details yeah. of the injuries, the trauma, the stabbings, the homicides, the suicides, the missing children. Um, and, and reading those, because I had to read them in real time. Yes, of course. So that I could maybe direct someone to do something mm-hmm. or that I could respond. Right? Or we had a spate of time where several police officers were killed in the line of duty in Philadelphia. One was a Sergeant Robert Wilson III. I got whisked from a dinner to the trauma bay at Temple Hospital while he's there. The trauma surgeons are trying to save him. Police are crying. There's blood everywhere. Um, A building collapsed on Philadelphia firefighters, and I had to go to the scene. And then I'm in the hospital with the smoldering bodies and body bags. And I tell people, Jeff, and I've told you frequently um, that I I think I was prepared strategically to be the season. I was prepared operationally on how to run the office and how to make it better. I was not prepared emotionally how to handle all the red carpet events, the black tie events, the paparazzi, the new friends. Um, the trauma of these cell phones and the events that I went to and all the places you go to having free, unlimited alcohol. And you almost have to, if you're not at a cocktail party with something in your hand and some sort of witty banner, you're wrong. And so as this only child who was always struggling with trying to fit in, and not knowing how to have a healthy way to deal with conflict, to deal with abandonment, rejection, uh, and the daily trauma of being the DA while trying to raise a family and the normal tensions and conflict of marriage. um, I didn't handle those things well and began to numb myself with uh, too many uh, martinis, uh, too much Jack Daniels and brown liquor on the rocks, and and too much and too much Seth, and exactly. Yeah, you know, it just it just strikes me that your story parallels um, what's going on in this country in a lot of ways because we've had leaders. Um, let's just take President Obama as a perfect example of someone who understood his role as a servant. Right. And yet people like you and me, which I can say about myself as well, um, somehow confused our identity with our office. And um, that led us into some difficult places. Right. And while I still, I believe that, I'm very proud of the work that I did as an assistant DA, mm-hmm. as a law school professor, um, as the DA. Um, you know, I, my theory, again, was of servant leadership, of trying to be a leader um, that served those that I was su- supposed to be the leader of. Yes. I always use the greatest example was from the movie Glory mm-hmm. and Matthew Broderick's character. Um, that he learned, he only became the leader in that movie when he learned that Denzel Washington's character hadn't run away to desert from the army, but to get boots because they were training the black soldiers in boot camp without boots yeah. or uniforms or pay. Mm-hmm. And when Matthew Broderick's character decided or understood that and made sure that his soldiers got boots and clothes and pay, then those that were following him actually began to follow him. Yes. So I always saw that leadership was about servant leadership as displayed in that movie and as displayed by uh, in the Gospels. So so take us now. Things start to go terribly wrong. All right. So tell us when, what the tipping point was and then um, 
how you handled it. Well, also, I was the first district attorney in America's history to prosecute the hierarchy of the Catholic Church mm. for shielding pedophile priests. Yes. Um, we had a long grand jury that investigated um, the systemic abuse in mm. Philadelphia. So many jurisdictions, of course, have prosecuted adults that abuse children. Um, but in Philadelphia, it wasn't just that this priest abused that child. Um, we were trying to prosecute the, the, the systemic yes. problem of the archdiocese, mm -hmm. knowing that there was credible evidence that this priest had done terrible things to children. And instead of even telling the parents or alerting the authorities, yes. they would take that priest, send him to their own facility for their own treatment, Mm -hmm. and then reassign that priest to another parish several miles away in the same archdiocese of Philadelphia and not even letting the new pastor or the nun that runs the, the school know that the priest, that they, they just got, they just put him in charge of the, the, the Catholic youth organization, the CYO. And, and it's well documented that Philadelphia was a leader in that. And I guess you were a leader in that, but there are unintended consequences of taking on the powerful. Correct. And again, I began, I began prosecuting politicians, which was something that my predecessor hadn't done. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, right. People are mad at me. Politicians were mad at me. Now the church, the former archbishop of Philadelphia contacted my pastor, told him not to give me communion anymore. Wow. Um, and so my pastor said that he would continue uh, to do that, you know, but um, that just, it, it just, and I learned so much that I, it's still, um, I can't talk about because of the grand jury operation and law. Yes. But, um, I, I just felt terrible with so much information that I learned and what I was being told and the pressures. Um, and so um, another point is that I had significant financial problems and that I had a great salary. The DA makes a great salary compared to those of the average American. Yeah. Um, but I had a huge house. I'd gotten divorced. I had child support, alimony. I was trying to keep my kids in the same school that my parents had sent me to. Um, this is like a white collar practice point. It's like you want to stop and just turn to everyone and say, living within your means is a pretty good deterrent to white collar crime. Right. So I certainly suffered that as well. And um, I can understand where you get it's a, it, it, for you, you turn from a vir virtuous cycle into a vicious cycle. Right. And so if I had been living within my means, um, I would not have been the easy target that I was. Yeah. Um, and so I was, there was one article, I, I was behind on my gas bill, yeah. about $500. Mm -hmm. The mayor of Philadelphia was behind on his gas bill. But the Daily News had an article about us. They called us the delinquent duo. Ooh. And they're trying to make the argument that, and it was because there was a, a, a union strike was about to begin. And so some employee in the gas department told the papers they were trying to make the mayor look bad. Yes. And they made me look bad just together. But that somehow the fact that I was behind on my gas bill was corrupt. I was like, if it was corrupt, I would have called somebody at the gas company and just deleted my bill. But a friend of mine said, called me up, said, Seth, we're good friends. He said he was Muslim. He said, Allah has been very good to me. I have more, more money than stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. I never want to see you, my brother, in the paper, in the news, because you can't pay your gas bill. Mm -hmm. so I was like, okay. And he gave me some money to pay my gas bill. Mm -hmm. Another time, you know, he said, look, go with me and my wife. We're going to go to we're going to go to Punta Cana for a vacation with our kids. Mm -hmm. So I can't pay for that. It's like I get points on my American Express card from all the business stuff. And if we don't spend them by September 30th, poof, they disappear. Yeah. Like, 
okay, that makes sense. Uh, I'm not taking any money out of anywhere. Or I'm mm-hmm. not doing anything for him. I'm not like taking him, uh, giving him a not guilty for mm-hmm. a DUI. He's my friend. So living, not living within my means, beginning to accept gifts, what I thought were gifts, pure yes. gifts, mm-hmm. from people that I thought maybe naively were friends. And you thought they had no agenda. Right, where everybody had an agenda. Right, right. There is no free lunch. Right. I didn't see that. I was just oblivious or hoping that it's no big deal. Yeah. I should have I should have reported every gift. Yes. Those are the rules. I was embarrassed. I don't want to say that my friend helped me out with my gas bill or whatever it was. Yeah. I should have. That would be much easier to deal with than just not doing it. Because mm-hmm. not doing it makes it look wrong. And some gifts, just as the DA, it's not like I was a city council person or a state rep. Being the you know the the fulcrum of the criminal justice system. I couldn't have the appearance of impropriety. Yes, of course. Or that I owed somebody. Um, and so, and a lot of people told me, look, as the first black DA, you got a big target on your back, dude. And I thought, oh, all my friends, I've, I've balanced this life my whole, and I didn't listen. I didn't understand. Well, what, one of the things that I don't think you understood, and obviously we've, we've talked a bunch between us, is that it's lonely at the top, right? And and friends are, you know, it's we can commoditize them on some level when we're when we're aspiring, but once you've arrived, it's it's not friends anymore. Right. You know, everything's got to be strategic. Correct. And I didn't understand that. I didn't have that built in me some people do yeah um you know you're you're exactly right jeff and that all of my long-term friends when i became the da they thought seth must have new friends because we don't hear from them well no i really didn't have any friends and there was nobody i could really talk to you know this is not that much different than guys who work at a loading dock together and one of them becomes the foreman (laughs) (laughs) now you're in the foreman in the booth and those guys are not your friends anymore. Right. You got to, and, and that's just the way it is. And so, where I was working, I'd become the district attorney where mm-hmm. I had started in 1992, and yeah. a lot of colleagues sure. were still there. Yeah. And so, I'm like, hey, let's go to lunch. And then my first assistant's like, well, you just can't go to lunch with that person. I said, well, he's one of my best friends. He, he was in my wedding. No, because then they'll think that they can talk to you. To circumvent the, the, the chain of command and exactly. the hierarchy, and they'll talk to you about their theory or they want to raise or assignments. I'm like, ah, oh, you're right. I just wanted to be my friend because I just wanted to be loved. I, I, I love pointing out the lessons as we go, you know, because this Point is, away. Point this away. is it. All right. All right. So l- l- let's make the jump now to, that you're, you're prosecuted. What's that about? And um, it goes badly. So we, there was a, an individual who was on my security detail that we had to take off the security detail because a woman had alleged that he had sexually abused her. Mm-hmm. And he demanded to get back on the security detail. And we couldn't put him back on the detail. She didn't want to press charges, though. Mm-hmm. Her therapist just wanted her to confront him in front of me which put me in a terrible spot. Yes. But he said that he was going to drop dime. He'd been keeping book on me and he was going to go to the feds with everything he knew about. So originally I was told that they were investigating that we had ghost employees, people that were friends of mine that were working and getting paid and giving me kickbacks. And then they quickly found that that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. But once they started investigating and they started looking, well, every ATM and every gas bill and every this, um, and so I just, you know, that's when I just didn't know what was happening. What, what, who's a friend? What's going on? They've got cameras. They've got wires. They got this. And, and so then I just, it was the fear of the unknown, not knowing what was going to happen, what was going to be the life for my daughters. Um, 
where was I going to go? What, what, what would life be like? And I just thought that this couldn't, this, I know I didn't have any criminal intent. So I thought there's no way that I'm going to get convicted. And this will be, I, I just didn't understand what was going on or why. And it really began to unravel because the uh, federal authorities began using all types of pressure on all types of people to, you know, tr- threaten them with unemployment compensation fraud if they don't testify against me or coming at people for this or their own stuff. Or, or why did you give him a gift? And then it all began to unravel. Well, you were a career maker for a young AUSA. I mean, you, you're a big fish. Correct. So, um, you're, you're, you're heading towards trial and, um, there's negotiations going on with, with your lawyers and the, uh, and the U S attorney's office. And what happens? Well, they begin, you know, I get lots of different lawyers and I just don't know what, what is it that they think I've done? I didn't understand what, what is it? Um, they want all the documents on my mother. So my, my kids with this, where they go to school, everything you can imagine. Um, and then ultimately I have what they call as a reverse proffer. And they make me sit across from the, uh, the, the U S attorneys that are prosecuting me. And they tell me they're going to prosecute me for a corrupt relationship with this friend, a corrupt relationship with this friend that they gave me gifts. And I did things for them that I use political action committee money to have my daughter go to an etiquette class at my private club, the union league. Um, that I had used my mother's funds that were supposed to go to her nursing home for my own personal use and for my kids. Yeah. And that I had used my city vehicle for personal use. Um, and I was just blown away. And then I found, I was told that one administration really didn't want to prosecute. They didn't think it was sufficient. The next the Trump administration hadn't, been sworn in yet and there's this vacuum and i was indicted um and i remember at that time but before being indicted just not knowing what was going to happen was like the most uh challenging in many ways like i said i would wake up feel sick to my stomach not knowing what was happening and i wish i had you know white collar week and your uh progressive uh, prison ministry folks to talk to because I would at least been able to listen to other people and how they were able to survive and overcome. I, I think a lot of people, there, there's no way for people who haven't gone through it to understand that the very worst part of this is not going to prison. The very first part, the worst part is, is the time before that. Right. When you're looking over your shoulder. The world is mad. You don't know who to trust. You don't trust yourself. Everything is crazy. You're 100% right, Jeff. And I tell folks, and I've told folks on uh, you know, the weekly uh, support group, that despite me having been an attorney for 25 years, a prosecutor, a defense attorney, I had risen in, as a major. I was a senior defense counsel for the Pennsylvania Army National Guard's 28th Infantry Division. <laughs> the questions that made me wake up at three o'clock, I didn't have the answers to. And my attorneys, they knew even less. Not that, I mean, they were great at what they were doing, but they didn't know what was going on in the mind of a person who was being investigated and indicted and on the way to trial. No. This, that was the point where I wish I had been able to talk to folks. There's a real existential, ontological right. thing going on. You know, like, 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 like the world is going to stop spinning and you're going to go flying off the, the face of the planet. Right. And there's, well, at least before our ministry got involved, there's no one to fill that hole. The criminal defense lawyers... It's it's not even a question of whether or not they care or not. They're mechanics. They have a job to do. Right. Their job is to get you to sentencing. And um, so I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. And you're 100% right. They were the mechanics. 
I began seeing a therapist um, at that time who, in addition to having a PhD in family therapy, was a Baptist minister. Mm -hmm. And it really was him, uh, Dr. Collins, Mm. that really, really helped me begin the transformational process that I'm still going through, a process of growth and enlightenment um, and shedding that old person. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.